Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Cliff Schecht. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 154. Cliff Schecht is an electrical engineer and spends his days rescuing vintage gear. He is the CEO and operates Reclaimed Audio. Reclaimed Audio offers repair and restoration services on audio, radio, and test equipment from the turn of the century through the current state of the art. Yes, sir. So, Cliff, on on that, uh, how do you go about restoring audio gear? I think that's like the big overall picture of this podcast. Okay, so it really kind of starts, I get a piece in. The first thing I do is rip it all the way apart. I want to look inside, see what's going on, knock all the dust out of it, because there's usually quite a bit of dust from stuff sitting around from 30 to 50 years and whatever. Um so what's the most interesting thing you found inside of a... Oh, man. That's... Yeah. So... Uh, Parker just goes right for it. <laughs> no, that's fine. I charge... I will charge extra if I open something up and I'm finding cockroach bits inside of your pots. I'm sitting there pulling them out with a pair of tweezers. And I've spent that, you know, hours on it. So that's it. why it's crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like crap. Oh, well, there's actually crap in it. Like mouse crap. Uh, like, oh, I've seen the, 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 the nests and the... Um, but that's where, you know, I got it for five bucks, so I can deal with a little bit of mouse poop and cockroach and lots of uh, geckos and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, I've seen some pretty <laughs> nasty ones. <laughs> okay, so, so, so you, you, uh, you, open up, you open up the gear, you kind of tear it apart, take a look at it, then what do you do? Um, well, so it really depends. The first thing I want to do, I don't necessarily rip all the boards out immediately. Um, I just want to pull it apart and take an overall look on the inside. Um, see if somebody else has worked on it because a lot of this stuff has been messed with in the past by somebody. So um, it depends on if if, it, if I know it's working or not as well. Sometimes people send something in as working and they just want to keep it working. Um, so it really depends unit to unit and what type of unit it is, tube, solid state. If it's a tube thing, was it a kit? Because if it was a kit, that means somebody went in there that was maybe not so good at soldering. Um so kind of just evaluate what's in front of me. Um, am I going to have to fix a bunch of soldering work? Um, or is the soldering good, but there's parts that are known to fail? Why is it here, pretty much? Um, so I'll go through and look at, like, um, what type of parts they're using. Uh, try to go through and date things, like uh, the capacitors. They'll have date codes on them, the pots and things like that. Um, and then let's say on, like, an old Marantz or something that's a classic unit, um, I kind of know exactly what needs to get done in those every time I get one just because they're about the same from model to model unless you're – there's certain features or whatever. But ignoring that, just the amps and such tend to kind of just need the same stuff. Um, Brand-specific equipment has, like, a certain thing that usually goes wrong with them. Exactly. Like uh, – Marantz's will have certain transistors and caps that I know. I just automatically am going to change them out. Uh, Macintosh, I know on like certain their, their power amps with the auto formers. I'm going to just rebuild the driver cards completely. Um, there's yeah, it really depends on the unit and the brand. Um, but then some brands are known for using. There's a transistor. The they look like little outhouses. The leads were uh, silver uh, silver coated. The silver oxidizes. That oxidation works its way into the plastic body and causes them to fail at the bond wire or, you know, the bond wire to the interface. And they'll be intermittent. They'll be noisy. The gain will go to crap. Uh, there's all sorts of problems you run into. Regardless, they're not working and they need to go and put in better parts. Um, and so... How did, how did you uh, actually, on, on that particular, that's that's really specific there. How did, how did you learn about that one? Well... Look at an old transistor, and why are the legs black when they should be silver? Like it's you know, as to the so it's just you know, reading around a lot of this information is available online. And on my end, I do have a master's degree in electrical engineering, so I spent seven years on top of my electronics hobby before that. Like just on top of that experience, um, the info is really out there. Uh, Audio Karma, there's kind of learning who you can trust as far as the info and learning kind of how to take what you've read and then verify it and apply it and things like that. That's where my technical knowledge really comes in handy, um, where I don't get caught up on things that other people may get caught up on, like what type of diode I'm using or something. I'm like, nope, just throw it in there. It's going to work. Well, what about, nope, it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> like when I'm coaching other people, I'm like, nope, just do it. I already know it's good. I've done it. Do it. It's good. <laughs> it, it really depends. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm sure working with the hi-fi audio community, they're very particular about every little detail. Uh, so so you kind of have to either train or coach or kind of go along with it, right? Every customer is different, and that's kind of another thing. I try to be very personable with everybody. Um, I'll get those customers that uh, a lot of people will hit, are you know they'll contact me trying to commission something because they know I have shelves filled with gear, and um, They'll say, I only want the mint condition stuff that I know only one person owned, and um, I'll show them what I have that's that type of uh, equipment and see if we have something that's a good fit for them. Um, or if it's um, – sometimes I'll get those guys that they want the – I call them like mechanic specials where like it's something I went through and restored it. It ain't pretty, but dang, it sounds good. You know, Stick it in your garage and it's good to go. You can beat it up and don't have to think twice about it, and you're not paying – Let's say it's like a huge pioneer. Instead of it being $2,400, it'll be $1,200 or $1,000. You know, I'll get my time. I'll get my money out of it for the time I put in. Um, I don't get that extra added value, I guess, of it being the crazy mint condition. But I probably didn't pay much for it either if it's a roasted out unit that I still put time into. So on, on these units, like, is it easier? This is a, another really big wide question, I guess. Um is it easier to work on like newer equipment or older equipment? It's more um, who designed it and did they make it to be uh, worked on? I personally actually like working on that old point-to-point vacuum tube audio gear where like uh, everything's kind of big and spread out. You can I kind of like open it up and read it like a book where I can see where the power supply is, kind of go through, see all the different sections. This is your RF section, audio, phase inverter, power tube stuff, and it's it's kind of funny. I keep saying it. it's one of those things where it's brand brand specific. You know, certain brands uh, like Fisher's. I just I love working on Fisher old Fisher uh, tube amps and stuff like that because they're just built so well. They're made to be worked on. They're spacious inside. They leave you room on top of what they did to do additional work um, for you know extra power supply caps underneath the bottom. I will uh, a lot of times I will to keep the original look. I will not remove the original can capacitors. I'll just clip them out on the inside, and then you can uh, you can use like E6000s or really good industrial glue to glue them in, and you install turret boards, whatever you need to do to secure it in properly. But uh, wire in new caps discreetly underneath versus trying to replace the can cap, and you kind of lose the look. And they have date codes on them and things that keep it error appropriate, I guess. Um, so that's a part of the maintaining the look versus the uh, <laughs> versus the quality, or you know the uh, reliability thing yeah have, have you ever seen the picture of have you ever tried with like the uh they gut the capacitor and then put new guts inside that's a smaller capacitor i've done it some it's kind of a time-consuming process versus just uh clipping them out and installing them underneath with uh it really depends on some units you almost have to do it but at that point I might just uh, put in newer caps. But the reason to do that is if you have something where it has unusual values like a 40, 40, 40, 500 microfarad or something like you can't really find that off the shelf these days. They do make new can caps, but they may not have some of the oddball values. So there are times where you have to do something like that. But a lot of times I could sneak that 500 microfarad cap. The new caps are so much smaller. You can just sneak it on in there in that chassis so much room with this old tube stuff for fitting in. But that's kind of the uh, funny difference between working on the tube stuff versus the solid state. With solid state, it's remove old cap, put a new cap. With the tube stuff, you have a lot more freedom and, like, it's a lot more, I guess, off the cuff of us. You're, uh, you just kind of approach each uh, section at a time. Um, Actually, so so that, that brings up another question that uh, that I've been – I've had in the past or been presented with is okay. So uh, with the can caps, you know, sometimes they have like a 37 microfarad or, you know, something where it's just like, well, okay, I'm never getting that. So, so in that case, uh, would you try to parallel caps? Would you try to put a 35 or maybe go to a 47 or do you do substitutes? Like how do you approach a situation like that? It's very situational. If it's on something like a speaker where it's going in a crossover and you want to get them as match as closely as possible, I'll actually go in and replace not only the film caps with the equivalent value, uh, and actually you will you can you know parallel caps or whatever to get 
if it was 4.7 microfarad, you can parallel up to get them as close as possible to that and change the resistor to really get them matched closely. But um, Or uh, a lot of times you can just round it up or round it down a little bit. If it's determining something like a cutoff frequency, then you maybe want to be a little more careful about choosing it, but there's usually a bit of leeway in that anyways. Um, like say it's on the input of a uh, an amplifier stage, you can maybe bump it up just a hair um, and usually not run into anything like you're introducing a crazy phase, uh, <coughs> a bunch of additional phasing issues or something causing it to... You know, go into oscillation or something crazy like that. Well, and and capacitors, even capacitors nowadays are like plus minus twenty percent of their of value. So, a lot of times they are. Even the higher quality parts are used. They'll be plus minus five ten percent. So it's really like people tend to uh, hyper focus on this stuff. And I've noticed that people that will focus on that stuff more maybe aren't so technically minded. So that's something that tangible that they can grab onto and focus on a little bit more. I guess. Um, it's the same with like um, why does somebody – a lot of these old fishers I sell that people just adore the sound and I love them too. They are just filled with ceramic caps and what have you read online? Ceramic caps are horrible for the audio path and you can't have them in there. Distortion and oh my god. They're microphonic. That, no, that's actually funny. If they are. We had a previous podcast where we did the DAC testing and people liked the DAC that had ceramic caps in it and the audio path. Nice. Yep. There's not really a huge issue with them. If you can go through it, you know, if you're sitting there flicking them and they're dinging at you, yeah, you probably should change them out because you're going to hear that. Same with the tubes, though, and like a tube amp. Um, you, you know, you know, it's funny. In in multiple tube amps throughout the years, I have I have tried to you know sniff the audio fairy dust, and I put silver micas uh, it for for the low valued caps. I tried it out. And in every amp I've ever built that had silver micas, I've never been pleased with it. And every every amp I've not used silver micas have been my better ones. Yeah, that's just personal. So. Exactly. I can't say – well, exactly. Like I can't say I dislike them, but I'm not going to say like I have to use silver mica. It's not part of my sound. What I tell people a lot of times is these caps are – typically they're nested in feedback circuits where it's going to get – it's going to get uh, – you know, in a negative feedback circuit, it's going to get divided out by the amount of gain that's in the feedback loop and all that anyways. Like, so if there's a gain of 100, the difference is already 100x less just, I don't know, off the t just from the start. I just really personally have not heard or had people complain about, like, I've never sent out a unit that I restored and had somebody say, um, hey, man, this thing sounds worse than when it came in. And I've read about that. It's something I have truly been nervous about in the past, especially with the certain customers, the ones that are very particular. Um, but I give them my honest opinion that um, exactly what I told you guys. I've never had anybody like say, hey, man, my Marantz doesn't sound as good after you went through it. Usually they're like, holy crap, man, it sounds great. Thank you very much. The best thing I can, the best thing for me is when I don't hear back from them other than they want something else worked on. Because that way, I know it's done. It's good. You don't, have, you don't have someone calling you up and going, you should have used that 3.33 repeating, of course, microfarad capacitor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they can hear the difference, yeah. trust me. <laughs> yeah, those audiophiles. Well, it's I deal with a decent amount of the audiophile crowd, too. And um, I, I don't have um, – I'm not having issues with those guys as far as, like, our opinions clashing. I try – it's almost like getting into a religious discussion. Like, I will respect your opinion. You respect mine. And where everything's copacetic. And we can even talk about the differences and not argue about it. And just, I'll respect your opinion. If you feel like that $10,000 power cable makes a difference, then I'm happy for you. I don't feel like it's – yeah, exactly. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I so, so I actually – I had a customer once – that uh, I did some work for, and um, he he showed me his setup, which he had spent. Uh, there was many zeros behind the numbers that he had spent on this his system, and he had actually paid the power company to run a separate line and an individual power pole for one room in his house for his theater room. He had he had a separate electric bill for his audio room. And and it was just the insanity that he went. Through. It's just baller status at that point. You're just doing it to do it. Like you, he doesn't it's like having a lift. It's like having a lifted truck. He doesn't hear the <laughs> difference, but he can tell people he does. 
because <laughs> it sounds cool to tell people, yeah, I got my own blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, that, that sounds amazing. I bet it's, it better makes a difference. Like the dedication was impressive. <laughs> that's for sure. It's, I read about them doing that in Japan. You just read about some crazy stuff and I have dealt with that crazy. But then it's like, uh, one of my customers, uh, he had some audio cables that were like RCA cables, but they had uh, oil in them or something. And one of the cables busted and the oil got in his amp and he thought it messed up his amp. And I was like, well, if he just had dry cables, it wouldn't have been an issue. But <laughs> the hell you do with oil filled cables? And he was like, well, I swear I heard the difference. A lot of times it dampens like, the audio signal. I don't hear that difference. <laughs> the sounds <They'll>, really greasy. <laughs> yeah. They'll say like they don't hear the difference right away, that you'll hear the difference over time. And um, I mean, no, to me, it's a lot of like hearing what you want to hear, the psychoacoustic effect that um, I don't know. <laughs> to each their own is how I like to put it. I don't want to tell people they're wrong. It's like even with, <laughs> even with my like sales pitch, I try not to be like a uh, – high pressure salesman because i know at this point this stuff's gotten pretty collectible and it's going to sell regardless so i try to let people choose what they want versus forcing any one thing on them unless i have something i really want moved out and then i'll discount it you know hey man you should really buy this it's a good unit i know it doesn't say marantz on it but it'll kick a marantz's ass <laughs> and <laughs> well okay so so back to the the repair side i got a question for you that i think it's uh it's a potentially a difficult one or maybe an easy one. So when you open up uh, any piece of gear, it doesn't have to be an amp. How do you know what you want to do to it and what you want to leave alone? I guess the leave alone part is the, the, the part where it's like, that's the hard one to determine. Like, how do I, how do you say, Oh, that capacitor's fine. I'm not going to replace that. Well, and that's where I go through. And instead of doing a picky choosy, pulling a part out, measuring it, Okay, yeah, here's the thing with that is for the time it takes me to remove one capacitor, test it, reinstall it, I have a Hacko, the FR300 desoldering gun. I've already desoldered the entire board by the time it takes me to test that one cap. So just on my end for, uh, I guess, brevity's sake to try to just get in and get out, I know what it's probably going to need. And instead of guessing what's probably gone wrong, I just change. And I guess this is a bit of experience in reading and just some knowing but um knowing that like okay the electrolytics and the tantalums typically are going bad um for different reasons but um so like if i see those then if it's in something that somebody sent in for a full restoration i'm just going to change them not really think about it um and then i'll go through and look at like the transistor types and see if there's ones that are on my 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 naughty list of you know known troublemakers there's certain diode types that are just known troublemakers they drift they fail um it doesn't even necessarily matter what mechanism is causing them to fail just knowing that they suck and they need to go <laughs> <laughs> pretty much is it like it's good to know the why on my end i want to i want to be technically sound and know why it's failing but it doesn't necessarily matter sometimes it's more as long as you know that it's failing and or it has potential to fail it's you know a known troublemaker as i like to call it then i'll just go ahead and change them out especially i don't know there's like really notorious ones and then there's more discretionary stuff where like if somebody's paying bigger bucks and they want me to just go all out versus scale it back and save a little bit well maybe i don't touch as much as the silicon or maybe i don't touch a whole section i just deox it and fader lube and make sure it sounds good it's performing up to spec and then move Wait, it out did the you door. Say fader lube so fader lube is a uh, Okay, so this is actually kind of a big thing. You'll see a lot of people uh, in like the forums and stuff like that. They'll be like, oh, my receiver doesn't sound right. And the first thing everybody says is, oh, deoxit. Hit it with deoxit. Uh, you don't want to just put deoxit in your pots. There's a, especially on the really early ones, the carbon ones, because uh, there's a lubricant in there as well. And when you do just fade, or you do just. Uh, deoxid it actually flushes out that so you're lubricant. talking about uh removing the oxidation on the carbon wipes inside a potentiometer no i'm talking about uh, this is actually on a potentiometer uh the track you have your wiper and then the track that's yeah, actually yeah, the, the carbon track that's in there is the carbon yeah that on the vintage pots if you use uh just deoxid it washes uh, there's a lubrication on there as well and it washes that away and then you have metal straight on the carbon and it wears it out way quicker 
So Fader Lube actually has an additional lubricant in there that is what you're replenishing, um, what the deoxid washes out. It's actually the additional lubricant you need so you don't wear out your tracks too quickly. Um, so and that's th Fader Lube. That'll, that alone will make things come back alive. It's, it it's literally, crazy. yeah, just deoxid. Like I call it, it's kind of funny because I don't really do much of it anymore, but occasionally I get in a lower end unit. It's not really worth it to do a full restoration. Um, I do the, I call it the spray and pray, where you just kind of spray it out, clean it out, and then pray that it works. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here, here's a here's a question for you. Um, well, actually, I wanted to, I kind of wanted to touch on on what you were just talking about there. I think you've kind of like explained in a long way, really, what makes your job and what what you do. Uh, I guess I guess people don't really have a full understanding in a way for what you do because it's just like oh I bring it to the guy he's like an auto mechanic he just fixes it he just follows the manual and it could and it and and it's not that way and in fact you, you kind of discussed it a lot there you, you mentioned uh, there's a lot of discretion there's a lot of kind of in a way secrets that you know a lot of things about hey this transistor gets replaced blah 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 so so there's not a whole lot it seems like that. Uh, there's an instruction manual for everything. There's so much that you've picked up along the way, right? Exactly. It's kind of a, uh, it's almost a learn as you go type of job. And um, I, I keep saying it, every unit is different. Every brand is different. Uh, their engineers all had different ideas on how things should be done. And uh, things change from era to era, obviously from tube to early solid state and then early solid state to the 70s stuff. And then, how they approach things in the 80s with the ultra high speed amps and higher power and um, every one of those kind of has to get approached differently with how you uh, restore them, um, how much work they're actually going to need. Um, and it's yeah, it's very, uh, it, it really depends on, you know, every, and then how was the unit stored? How, how was it taken care of? Was it maintained in the past? Um, there's just so many variations, um, and that's actually what makes the job kind of interesting in the end is uh, every day is different, every unit's different. Even after I go through and do what I know Sam or Rance needs, I may have to trace out a couple of little issues that the owner didn't tell me about or I didn't know about. Or um, And then there's the actual cosmetic side of things, making things look as new as you can. Um, I've learned a lot of weird little things like uh, vinegar and clear anodization don't work, or sorry, um, uh, ammonia and clear anodization don't really agree very well. Like it'll kind of cause it to look smeared and um, definitely like on old, uh, any old glass dials, this is like a rite of passage for text is uh, if you get like an old Fisher dial wet and then you wipe it off, it'll actually uh, completely wipe off the logos because it's old like water slide decals. Oh. So like on old Morantz's and old uh, McIntosh and Fisher units and stuff, if you see that glass, you just use your breath and use like a shirt, and that's all you need. You don't want anything more than that, or you will It'll come right off. Just wreck the yeah, exactly. I've done it once. Everybody has done it once, and then hopefully that's <laughs> it. <laughs> well, well, here's a question for you. I want your opinion on something. Uh, Parker and I talked about this, gosh, a few months ago. So I have an old Hickok power supply. It's a high-voltage regulated power supply, 0 to 400 volt, with, uh, with a handful of extra little gizmos in there, too. So I cracked open the, uh, the, this power supply because I was thinking, hey, maybe I'll do some restoration on it. And frankly, it looks like a mess inside, and I didn't really want to spend all that time on there. Now, here's the thing. It has like six or seven cap cans, big ones. Uh, 500 microfarad, 40 volt kind of guys. So they're they're not necessarily super common stuff, and they're puffy. So they've obviously had some age on them, and they're they're old. Now here's the thing: the power supply fires up. It runs great. Uh, I don't detect any noise on it or anything. So in your opinion, should I do anything, or should I just go until it fails? Uh, well, the problem, the thing that the thing that worries me about doing something like that is. When it fails, it can fail uh, pretty fantastically. Like, have you ever seen what those can caps look like when they really blow their guts? Like, oh, they... I, I've made them blow their guts. <laughs> oh, yes. So it it kind of sucks. Like when uh, when you when you have to actually clean up that mess or whatever. So um, it really depends. If it's something that I'm going to put into regular use in my shop, um, 
I, it really depends. Like some of my tube testers are still mostly all original and they're working fine. Um, or they kind of came as is. I know they were calibrated previously. So I will use, um, I kind of use them as a, not a, uh, like the numbers that it's given me aren't the uh, calibrate. I need to go have them calibrated. But um, I know they're about good enough. I'll compare them to known good tubes versus what it's given me for what I'm testing and things like that. And um, it's definitely good enough because then I'll also test them in circuit and make sure everything's balancing out properly. But um, it really depends on what you want to do with it. If you're going to use it regularly and you need it to be reliable, it's probably not that hard to find. Uh, you just go with like a 470 microfarad 50 volt cap or you could bump it up to uh, four set, or you could go to 1000 microfarad 63 volt. And the reason to step it up that extra 13 volts is because it was probably designed to run off of 110 to 117. And then modern wall voltages tend to be a lot higher, like 123, 125. So after the rectifiers and everything, you'll actually have a little bump in all your voltages. And so it gives you a little more headroom on uh, some of the caps. And I actually like on uh, some of the old uh, power supplies and stuff like that in a lot of these units, I'll do that. I'll step it up one extra rating for the voltage maybe for the capacitance and like a power supply. Um, you actually have to be kind of careful about that. If you go from say a 10 microfarad cap to, you know, a thousand microfarad cap, then the inrush current could be enough to say blow out the uh, diode that's feeding that rectifier circuit. You know, there's things that I'll see people doing like that where they don't necessarily, you can tell they don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're just going in trying to make it work again. Yeah, they don't understand the consequences of, of their actions. Of re-engineering, <laughs> yeah. Right, right, yeah. If there's a small value cap in there, there's typically a reason why it's a small, well, smaller value cap. You can't just keep going up and up and up. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, on that, Stephen, I would, I wouldn't really care too much about the mess. I guess those capacitors would make. Um, I would more care about like whatever the power supply was currently powering when it decided to eat the dust and explode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, most of the stuff that I would power with 400 volts uh, could probably take a blast anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> no, like, but, but I just know from experience, because I have done restoration on, on things of that sort, I know that it would be many, many hours of time, you know, tracing out things, pulling pulling all the wiring because the wiring is awful inside of this power supply. It's just like, do I feel like devoting the 10 to 12 hours I know it's going to take to just replace, you know, a handful of caps or do I just keep going? And, and so far it's not a, it's certainly not an everyday use device for me. It's a, like a once a month or every other month kind of thing. So I don't know. It's one of those things. I'm just like, I'm not sure if I should actually do I it. I would kind of, you'll probably like turn it on one day and see it has too much ripple or something. That's the type of thing where I'll just make sure it's fused properly, make sure the power core is not crunchy and just use the dang thing until, you know, until it pops and then fix it as it breaks. That's, you know, especially if it's personal thing, I've got a uh, tube amps and stuff I use where almost all the can caps are original and um, I reformed them. I have a I have a meter that will tell me. It tells you dissipation factor, which is related to ESR, and it'll tell you the capacitance. And um, if I know those two are okay, um, I mean, why not use it? Oh, you can also physically on these old can caps. A lot of times, you can physically see if the seal is okay. Um, I haven't found that they need like that crazy reforming process where you bring it up on the very act slowly over the course or whatever. If the seals are okay, and uh, I tend to use the uh, thermistors or a light bulb limit or something to where it kind of slowly ramps it up, but over the course of a few seconds or something, not you don't have to go this 10, 20 minutes. Usually they're good or they're not good. They're so not gonna explain this reforming process because I'm a, I'm a digital electronics engineer so like that sounds completely foreign to me. Of okay, slowly ramping stuff up. Get ready for the wank. Well, so uh, forming capacitors has to do with uh, uh, you have um, an aluminum layer. It's like an aluminum foil, and then you have this electrolyte gel inside of them, and then the other plate, uh, the other plate, yeah, the other roll of aluminum foil. That's your capacitor, but the actual insulation isn't from that electrolyte gel. It's from the layer of aluminum oxide that forms um, from that electrolyte gel, and that's what gives you your capacitance. And that's what depletes over time and what you essentially need to uh, 
what you're trying to reform by bringing it up slowly. Sorry, my dad just <laughs> popped great. in here. Uh, he's one of the helpers. I'm doing a uh, video, a blog, or a I'll thing. See, so I'll sorry. Uh, he's actually a doubly as well. He does. Uh, he has his own bench here. He gets to uh, play. He does a lot of RF stuff for me. Uh, helps me keeps the radios working when I get the cool head scratchers. And he does a lot of old. Uh, he likes the transistor radios and stuff. The early transistor radios. Um, they're a lot. They're a lot of fun to get going. They're kind of like you can usually knock them out in an hour type projects. Um, and there's actually I don't know if you've ever looked. There's a really big collector's market for those. Um, a lot of this stuff now, really. Um, stuff that people had when they were kids that it just it resonates, you know, N nostalgia bombs, it's nostalgia. But then having it work as well is just the extra cool factor on top. There are still AM radio stations um, here where I am now. I don't really have one that I listen to too much. But when I was in Lubbock, they had an old country station that I listened to almost nightly because it was. And you put it on an old tube radio, and it just has the sound. Kind of has the. It's just it was great, and they played a lot of old Hank Williams and stuff like that. It was it was perfect. So yeah, there's definitely that like, I mean, even with the whole vinyl thing, like I can play an MP3 or sorry, actually a wave or whatever, a high quality audio file and it sounds great. And then I can take the same thing that was, uh, it was recorded say in the 60s or 70s, 70s where they were carefully crafting these albums and then carefully mastering them so that everything was perfect. Um, I do actually sometimes think that the vinyl sounds better. Sometimes the... It really depends on who mastered it, whatnot. Uh, kind of hopped on a tangent there, but um. That's all, it, it, there's there's so many throughout the whole process of of creating music. There's so many knobs that people are turning. It's really hard to make it uh, work across the board. So yeah, you know, it's one of those things where who, you're right. Whoever mastered a vinyl may have done it in a way that you really like it, or it may work really well with whatever circuit you're putting it through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's where like I'll have certain uh, from my system. I definitely have certain demo tracks that just make it. Uh, it just makes it sing. It sounds so good. Like you'll watch people get goosebumps when they hear it. Like that's what you're going for. Like that's when you know they're feeling it. Like you could see it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so when you're when you're taking these units apart and starting to replace parts in them, when do you go? Okay, I'm gonna turn like turn this thing on for the first time. Because if you let's say you bought something off like eBay for a buck. And it says it's just broken. You notice it'll plug that thing in right away, right? No, that's where I, we were talking about at the very beginning. The very first thing I do is uh, when I buy something um, is I pull it apart. I want to see what's inside. And um, so I'll go through it. I'll evaluate it on, say, something like a solid-state amp. I'll just go through it board by board. Each board gets treated. And then I go into the service manual and I look up if any of those boards need certain adjustments. Um on your power amps, you typically need to set the bias. Uh, you bring it, you set the bias to the minimum, and then you set the DC offset to what looks like centered. And then, um, essentially, all you need is a variac and a light bulb limiter. You don't need the variac, but it's kind of good to kind of bring them up slowly. And my variac also has a, a watt meter, so I can see if I'm drawing too much current right away or something like that. Um, and and real real quick for 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 our listeners who uh, are not super aware can you can you explain what a light bulb limiter is yeah i was i was about to get into that so that's uh one of the two things that is really kind of saving your butt on any solid state gear the light bulb limiter is a light bulb that goes in line with the power so that uh as you're bringing it up a light bulb has a negative resistance so that as more current gets goes through it the res it starts uh as it gets brighter and brighter the resistance goes up and so it's only gonna get to a certain point before it's just at uh, essentially if the amp starts drawing too much current the light bulb turns on and um, you kind of want to size the light bulb so that uh, usually like 50 watts for a smaller amp to 100 watts for a larger um, to, for a larger amp um, but it's, it's a relatively simple way to uh, see if you're drawing too much current and then when you're setting say the bias if you didn't replace the old trim pots um, which I don't always do some people always do um, a lot of times you can clean them um, the trim pots that you would use to set the bias on a power amplifier um well if those like skip out momentarily from dirt or something like that then in some circuits that means the power amp just goes full power right away and you'll see that light bulb limiter fire on like a rocket hopefully before anything gets damaged if you don't have that in there then it's just going full current until something blows something up smokes. a lot of times it's not just a fuse it's 
transistors and emitter resistors and you know if it's big enough amp things start really burning out good and you get craters in the boards and uh, <laughs> it prevents things like that from happening oh yeah but that's also why you're using the very act to bring it up slowly and uh, yeah and then there's certain gear that you can't use a very on some uh bigger power amps will use primary side switching like the carver amps they'll actually do a uh They'll only uh, have it on for a portion of the uh, si- input sine wave for the you know from the wall, and uh, they do that so they can use a smaller power transformer to get the same wattage. Uh, they only turn it on uh, full time as it's needed. And they actually have a circuit that looks ahead, looks ahead, and um, it sees what the amp is doing. If it's a high demand, uh, high demand moment in the peak in the song, then they'll turn on the additional supply and. Uh, give you more of the sine wave to uh obviously you get more power they'll turn on additional supplies that's like you know class uh class g switching amps and things like that um that's some fancy control yeah um that's something though where you don't really want to use a a lot of times they'll tell you don't use a variac unless you they have the triax on the input side Uh, you have to short out the track before you can use a variac to troubleshoot the second like everything after the transformer essentially um and that's not just a Carver-specific issue. Yamaha did it at a few amps, and there's a few other companies that have done that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of something you don't see so much anymore because it's actually a budget-saving thing and not really a selling point anymore. Um, yeah, who, 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 who wants a small transformer on the top of their amp, right? But it's how Carver <laughs> got uh, so much power in those tiny rack units. Like It's cool what he accomplished with what he did, but there's definitely some, uh, there's some bad that goes with the good with that circuit. <laughs> not my... Not my favorite thing he did but i can appreciate the technical aspects of it so is there any like i think we talked about a couple of the myth, myths of audio gear but is there any like major myths that you ever debunked um i don't really at this point i've kind of spent the time i built a lot of like guitar amps and stuff like that i spent a lot of time uh cloning vintage fender guitar amps and when i was doing that i was using a lot of the error correct parts uh error correct uh resistors the uh, capacitors and stuff like that and uh really what i'm finding is i still have a lot of those amps and 10 years later they all have a bunch of problems now the caps are leaking uh (laughs) just things that you don't want to happen are starting to happen i'm having to go through and like redo work i did 10 this is when i was learning how to build a tube amp and um trying to make it i was using parts that at the time were new old stock but you know 10 years down the road, it's really on a couple of the amps that I was using personally. Like, I personally have worn some of those caps out. So I tend to uh, stay away from, like, uh, like I'm okay with carbon comp resistors. Uh, there's actually a measurable second harmonic distortion that they introduce if you have enough, uh, if you have enough voltage across them, a voltage drop across them, they actually introduce a measurable distortion that will slightly sweeten the sound. It is an appreciable difference that you will hear if you build an amp with carbon film versus carbon comp resistors, like all throughout the amp. It'll probably be noisier with the carbon comp as well, but you know, you take the good with the bad in that case. Um, but I've gotten away from using like the old film caps and things like that. I also don't go for the ultra handmade boutique audiophile caps that hand rolled. Um, I don't want to pay 50 to $80 per cap to, you know, for the bragging rights of doing so when I personally just am not hearing a big difference. I don't measure a difference. And that's really the thing. Can you measure a difference? I have, I have a huge rack of audio test gear over here, distortion analyzers, HP, Agilent, all the good stuff. I'm just not seeing the difference on them. I don't hear a difference. I'm not having customers complain that they're hearing a difference. All I'm hearing, all I'm getting told is that, Hey, it sounds good. It's still working. If they're happy and I'm happy, then, you know, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people, I think I said it earlier, It's it, I see a lot of people that aren't as technically minded hyper-focusing on those type of things like um, what brand is on the cap versus uh, what value is in the circuit. They'll sit there and swap the same value but different brand expecting you know some kind of a difference in the sound. Well, I'm just going to redesign the circuit because I can see uh, why it sounds the way. Like you'll tell me, well, it sounds a little dark. I'm not going to change the same value cap out for the same value to make it brighter. I'm going to change the value or modify the circuit somehow to brighten it up. Um, they'll talk about like the flavor differences. You start talking about like it's food, like palpable Spicy. sound stages and 
the flavor of this cap and this is smooth and this is uh, spicy. <laughs> it's just like this. I have to personally use these words to describe audio circuits. I've learned how to talk the language, but it's kind of like from a from a technical standpoint, it's kind of shameful that I can't use the like technical jargon. I have to use the like. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to use words that people can understand. You know, they don't well, necessarily. You, you know, it's funny. I, I was I was watching a video just the other day where somebody was swapping out different uh, types of caps and different dielectrics, basically. And uh, they they were showing like, oh, they were saying, hey, this sounds different because of X Y Z. Although the funny thing was, the caps that this person was swapping out had a tolerance of twenty percent. So you're hearing the tolerance, the value shift between caps, not really the caps themselves. Now, if you could measure them and get, you know, uh, 0.1% and then swap them out, that'd be a little bit better of a test, if you ask me. Well, even then, I've heard so many stories of uh, these audiophile guys, and not just, I, just, I don't want to just pick on them. I've seen it in the guitar amp community, the guitar pedal community, where um, the one I remember specifically was... Uh, they did a test with some audiophile guys, and they had you know audiophile speaker cable versus a uh, coat hangers or something, you know, thick metal but nothing special, and uh, or maybe it was lamp cord, and they did a blind A/B test, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was like they either couldn't tell a difference between one cable and the other, or they actually were choosing the crappier cable over the better cable. Um, and so there's just a lot of that like psychoacoustic effect and people hear what they want to hear. They hear what they – like if you spent $500 but they're telling you this $1,000 cable sounds better, are you going to hear you know, the, the failures of this $500 cable? Are you going to hear the differences when you spend the extra 500 bucks for this $1,000 cable? Are you really going to hear a difference? Why is there a difference in the cable? I've just I think just <laughs> do what makes you happy. Essentially, yes, and that's kind of where, like, you know, it's almost like talking religion or politics. You know, you just it's it's almost an opinion type thing at a certain point. Like, respect other people's opinions and do what you're gonna do, and that's kind of how I try to approach it, at least. And if a customer wants me to use audiophile grade caps, if they're providing them, I'll use whatever they want that whatever they want me to use. If they want me to use my parts that I know are gonna sound fine and they're you know, 105 degree C rated parts, uh, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 hour rated caps made by Nishikon and Panasonic. And the stuff they, this is like the good stuff that they make. Quantifiable quality. Exactly. And the other thing is sourced from a reliable source, Mauser and DigiKey, where I know it's not coming from some factory in China where they relabeled them or any kind of goofiness. I know they're coming from manufacturer, Mauser, me. Um, there's no question. I don't buy parts. I very, very rarely buy anything off of parts-wise off of eBay. Um, there's just too much, uh, too many fakes out there um, in general. That's actually a big thing that you run into on um, eBay and such is a lot of fakes out there. And sometimes it's done dangerously where they'll take, say, a uh, like a 22 microfarad 400-volt uh, cap and they'll restuff it into like a a new looking cap and it'll say like 47 microfarad 500 volts what happens if you put 500 volts on a 400 volt cap well it's going to blow up at some point and it's actually i've seen it on you know forums and stuff like that the guitar app guys that are buying their caps bulk on ebay and it's biting them in the ass <laughs> and i mean to me a lot of times you can actually tell when they're fake they'll have things that you just don't see on other parts like they'll be crimped on both sides or just it really depends, but I've just... The brand's legit cap for real? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. You'll see a lot of people, they'll put, not even them, but the actual, like the big manufacturers will put like the audio grade caps and stuff like that. And Fine gold. Me, yeah, they don't really explain really what the differences are between using like, uh, what's the ones that use uh, silk impregnated something versus whatever or... I mean, Teflon's as good as it's going to get. Like, if you want to hear just absolutely zero influence from the cap in your circuit, use a Teflon cap. It's also probably one of the most expensive technologies. But um, I don't know. There's I, I try to kind of stray away from the voodoo electronics and just do uh, what I know is going to be reliable. And 
I guess figuring out your formula for success, figuring out um, what brands you like, what um, and, and there's a lot of like you can research it online. You know, like what's reliable, what's failing for other. A lot of these guys readily share information online, um, so the info is really out there if you know where to look and who to ask. And those guys really aren't that hard to find. I mean, there's plenty of guys like me as well as me on Facebook and the forums and stuff. Uh, sharing tips and tricks and you know people private message me daily asking me little questions here and there and uh, i've kind of had to start backing off because it'll, it'll start getting too uh time consuming but um if i can they'll tell me a problem and i'll tell them right away like yeah it sounds like your power supply is going out like somebody says hey both my channels have hum well if it's both channels it's probably in the power supply there's things that's just higher level you know kind of any amp is going to have the same problem. If the power supply is messed up, well, it's probably going to have hum or buzz or some sort of an issue. So I got a, one more question. And so let's say you open up the amp or open up a, a piece of hardware and there's a part that's obviously damaged, but it's so damaged you have no idea what it is. Like, so you know it's like a resistor, but like all the color bands are vaporized off of it. How do you go about fixing that kind of thing? Well, there's... Um I, I kind of call it using your like context clues, using what's around the circuit to uh, figure out what does it imply that that resistor should be. Is it in a spot where it's going to be high power? And then is it going to be a low value or a high value? And then if it like cratered the board and you've lost any designators and you just can't tell what goes in there, past a certain point, it's just DOA, replace the board. Um, a lot of times it does, it's not not getting to that situation it's um find the schematic figure out what went and why it went and then uh you can build up around what failed and um I, it really depends it's one of those like it's situational you know every amp is different and some things just blew up so bad that um and it's not well documented you don't have schematics available these proprietary parts uh there's a lot of those uh yamaha had those vfets they use that um yeah, the, the, I think they're the VFETs that they used in some of the uh, some of their 80s amps and stuff like that. Where if they go, they just haven't made them in 30, 40 years. So you kind of just it just goes into the landfill then. Yeah, or you sell it as parts. Part and it people out. Pull parts off to make another one mint or something like that. It really depends, but that's where it's my job to know which units are uh, notorious for having unobtainium parts and things like that, and just kind of avoiding that stuff or buying it working and then it's my job during the restoration to make sure it stays working and I don't blow up anything that I can't replace. Unobtainium MOSFETs, huh? <laughs> so what made, what made VVETs special? I've never heard of those. Uh, I I have to even... So do you know Steven? Um, I, this is the first I've heard of a VVET. Uh, VVET, Magical Amplifier. So you'll hear people describe them. I think the reason is... They uh, they kind of distort like a triode, so they have kind of a magical set. A magical, there you go. Um, voodoo <laughs> electronics. No, they have kind of a a tube-like uh, sound, I guess, if you will. Um, the pro, yeah, the problem with those fats is they're just completely unobtainium at this point. And um, yeah, they they I'm looking at I'm looking at a PDF that shows their curves. They, they look very triode-like. Yeah, exactly. So they have a very certain way of distorting, which is great as far as um okay yeah you found exactly what i was looking for then um they they have a nice sound they just haven't made them in 40 years so they're a little hard to replace at this point and uh if they're blown up you're kind of either find something that you can donate them out of well and the other problem is because they're fets you have to match them by their idss and so you have to buy like a hundred of them to get <laughs> you know a couple of good pairs or you know so there's just kind of logistical issues with working on it too. It's not that easy to find matching vets out of, you know, they're just all over the place from the manufacturer, like really all over the place. So to find a set to where it's not only matching, but they match within a certain current range, you got to buy quite a few. Oh, cool. Steven, do, oh, Steven, do you have anything else? Uh, you know, what I would like to hear is how people can get in contact with you or find out more about you. 
Oh, well, uh, the best way to do it is uh, either through my Facebook page. Uh, a lot of people tend to just add me to my personal Facebook page. But uh, if you look up, uh, it's facebook.com forward slash reclaim vintage audio. Or, um, I mean, that's really the easiest way to find me currently. I need to get a website up still. Um, I'll hopefully have that up soon. And then I have a reverb.com forward slash shop forward slash reclaimed audio is where I post my restored uh, vintage uh, audio gear and whatnot, at least the cherry units that aren't getting dumped on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that I really, you know, I put all my heart and soul into, that's the stuff that goes on reverb. And then stuff I'm not going to fix, that just goes on eBay for parts for other people. I try not to throw anything out. I guess that goes with the uh, reclaimed part of my name. <laughs> so thank you, Cliff, for coming on to our podcast. And thank you guys so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I'm sure I'm sure we could go on for another few hours, but uh. I know we kept it like I'm glad we did too because we start getting into the technical aspects. One, I could sound like an idiot if I'm not well researched into what I'm talking about, and two, uh, like you just said, you can go on for hours and hours. Well, thanks a lot. Would you like to uh, sign us out? Uh, sure thing. That was the uh, Macrofab Engineering Podcast. Uh, I was your guest, Cliff Schecht, and we were your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. See you later, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or vintage audio gear or test equipment that you want Stephen and I to know about, tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Yes, a real person looks at that inbox. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.